This episode has been brought to you in part by the Azrieli Music Prizes. Join them in celebrating artistic excellence at the AMP Gala Concert, live from Maison Symphonique in Montreal, happening October 20th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. Orchestre Metropolitain will premiere award-winning music by laureates Aharon Harla, Iman Habibi, and Rita Ueda. Learn more at azrielifoundation.org backslash AMP. This is Bonjour Chai, the MK Pop Edition. I'm Avi Fongold in Montreal. I'm here with Alana Zakon in Montreal and David Sklar in Calgary. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we dissect K-pop, and by that we mean kosher pop. We get into the latest TikTok trend of Orthodox Jewish music. I interview a former member of the Miami Voice Choir, and yes, more sermon slams. But first, Alana, David. How was your Yom Kippur? I managed to get to synagogue. Um, I, I tried to commit to the full fast, but I sort of had to tap out around 2, 2.30 in the afternoon. I couldn't handle it anymore. I had to get some work done and I was just developing a headache and said, okay, enough, enough. I have to have some, some hot soup. So I, I gave up. Uh, I hope God will forgive me for next year. Well, you'll have to bang your chest harder <laughs> next time. My Yom Kippur was, was really nice, actually, which is a weird word to use for that holiday, but... It was very meaningful, and there was there was three cousins at the show that I went to, and one of them was a Holocaust survivor, which was really powerful. He's 88 years old, and he has an incredible voice. He has a music background. So and he, he gave the sermon uh, before Yisker as well yesterday, and I have to say, it was it was a very meaningful fast. How about you, Avi? Where was this? Uh, Chabad of NDG. Chabad of NDG. Very nice. Um, I, I was at the Shar. Um, I was there all day. Um, it's what you do. Uh, I fasted. I prayed. I hope that I am forgiven and uh, that I have atoned properly. And uh, yeah, so that was my that was our Yom Kippur. And uh, we now are full steam ahead into uh, Sukkot. And uh, the Sukkah frame is already up. And uh, we'll uh, try to, you know, have a Sukkah ready by Sunday. Let's get on to our uh, main discussion about the Miami Voice Choir and TikTok uh, right after we hear from our sponsor. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. So, TikTok. TikTok is not just the sound you hear as the moments to do chuva slip away at Ni'ila. Nor is it your watch counting the seconds painfully slowly as you anxiously await that bagel and juice at Aunt Sylvia's breakfast, and it's only 10.17 in the morning. No, no, TikTok is an app, a social media platform, a place to create videos of silly dances, record yourself reacting to silly dances, or the latest trend that the almighty algorithm has crowned to be our father, our king. At least for a few weeks, only to be supplanted by the newer, shinier king. When reports of the Miami Boys Choir trending on the TikTok app started surfacing, I couldn't figure out if it was something fleeting amongst the from Cognoscenti or whether this would be bigger than sea shanties. Turns out it's real and it's spectacular. The Miami Boys Choir 
actually has roots in Canada when the director Yerachmiel Begun was studying in Yeshiva in Toronto and produced three albums under the name The Toronto Boys Choir. He subsequently moved to Miami, formed a choir there, and began releasing albums under that title, even after eventually settling in New York. The choir has since become a powerhouse in Jewish music, not only releasing a string of hits over the years, but also becoming the launching pad for careers in Jewish music for many of the alumni. So this being perfect Moshe Chai fodder, we figured we'd break all our Yom Kippur resolutions and spill some tea on the orthodox pop trend on TikTok. Alana, describe what's going on. So what I'm seeing is a bunch of yeshivish looking boys wearing black velvet kippahs and very shiny metallic button downs with equally shiny ties. And they're singing Jewish music with brightly colored lights on the stage and some very choreographed moves. Um, they're very soulful. They're they're singing passionately, and uh, it's pretty catchy. Okay, so first of all, uh, I'm not on TikTok, but I am on Instagram and Facebook. So when this hit, generally a lot of things on TikTok make their way to Instagram, and it's a bit vice versa. I I'm obsessed. So when, when I saw these videos, I just fell in love and I sort of did a, like a deep dive over the past few days, not only of the Miami Boys Choir, but then I fell right back into the old classics like the Maccabees, uh, all the Hanukkah songs that they did. I fell into this whole new thing. I rediscovered Matsisi Yahoo. Um, I'm, I'm in love. I, I think this is so wonderful and it's so exciting and it just it filled my heart with with all the joy that was missing on Yom Kippur when I was when I was mostly hungry. I would say. I remember growing up at summer camp because I, w- I went to a modern Orthodox camp and every year, and it was ironic for us, um, whatever the new Miami Boys Choir song was that year, it kind of became the anthem of the summer. Um, so like it has a lot of nostalgia for me in that way. And I actually get a kick out of music like this. Like I, I really love soulful, like very religious sounding music sometimes. Like when I'm cooking for Shabbat, I'll put on something Kind of like this. I'm not as into the Maccabees. I find that a bit more derivative, but we can talk about more about Ooh. that after. But Avi, I was going to ask, can you tell us a bit more about the words in this song? Because that's the part I find hilarious is all these non-Jews around the They're world just singing are about Jerusalem talking about it. And how the hills are surrounding yeah. it. And so it's a nice song about how, you know, is Jerusalem is at the center of the world or at the center of our world. And uh, it's surrounded by mountains and, uh, you know, there's, there's not much to it. It's not a very uh, theologically deep song um, that has that's resonant with meaning and, and depth as opposed to any of the other songs that you uh, heard in your Orthodox summer camp. Uh, I don't even remember. What, what were the ones that you remember? I don't think I don't think that was a Miami Boys Choir song. Yeah, it is. I looked it up. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I, but I also want to talk about this video. I want to talk about this video a bit more in depth and sort of analyze it. Now, you know, when this thing became a bit of a viral sensation and a viral hit, they 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 talked to some Orthodox people. They sort of said, "Is this good for the Jews? Is this bad for the Jews? Right? Is this getting away from the message of true Orthodox Judaism? Is TikTok helping?" Um, bring up 
better Jewish perspectives or is it hindering us and sort of going further away from what Jews should be focusing on? Because sometimes with TikTok, with Instagram, we can get sucked into this hole and then discover a whole bunch of different things. And I'm curious, maybe from more of the Orthodox perspective, do you think things like this are going to help with the Orthodox Jewish community? Do you think it's going to open the doors or do you think it's going to sort of say, now these kids are watching different videos and moving further and further away from Judaism? Let me ask you something, Uh, David, how many K-pop bands do you know, like Korean pop music bands? BTS, which not not BDS, but BTS. Uh, Alana, do you know any Korean pop bands, K-pop? No. Do you know that it's now a huge, uh, you know, thing? I'm aware. Um, The people that are into K-pop, aside from the hardcore devotees that buy albums and you know listen to it full time how many of them actually know about korean culture as a result of listening to k-pop probably a lot i would think i was gonna say i imagine the opposite i imagine people listen to the music and it's sort of there and uh they're not necessarily learning like the language in order to translate words as it's going along maybe not learning no maybe not learning the language but getting i think a bit more appreciative for the culture and then following up so obviously it's a stepping stone i think oh this is so this is uh fun music we're just dancing to it it's a bit of a tiktok instagram sensation but then being like well i want to discover a little bit more about where this is coming from no maybe if you actively like are interested in it and you're the one that you know you hear this band and they're not being promoted and you get into it like if you're uh you know if you got into the sea shanties before they were a thing on tiktok right and you just decided to to learn about it then you're going to learn about the culture behind right that in in a deeper way because you have an active interest i suspect that when it's tiktok and it's what's being fed to you and it's an algorithm the same way that pop music is just like thrown at you most people aren't necessarily saying oh i want to stop and learn about orthodoxy or judaism in general as a result of being exposed to this video but i think it is good for the because there's so much uh, content out there that's kind of anti-orthodox and at least there's this one blip and people might, you know, maybe next time they see someone orthodox on the street, they have the song in their head and it makes them feel positivity instead of, you know, what might have been portrayed in that unorthodox series, either one of them. Yeah, but Stissel was a, a series that was on Netflix for multiple seasons. And um, did it change people's perceptions of things? Did it make orthodoxy great? It's not going to change uh, the world. Maybe, maybe not. But- I don't know. Like, I, I really, I guess I'm skeptical about how these trends that come and go um, really have lasting change. So I have a question to pivot a Please. little bit. Uh, David, before you mentioned the Maccabees, you mentioned Matisse Yahoo. If you could pick like a top Jewish song that is really getting to you these days that you like listening to, what would it be? So last night as I was going over all the, the different Jewish music, um, I, f- I discovered or I rediscovered Matisse Yahu Miracle, but it's the, it's the acoustic version. The, um, and it, it, it gives me all the feels. It's, it's a wonderful rendition of his more like poppy Miracle song, which is the official version, but it's on YouTube and it's just, it, um, it, uh, it gives me all the good feels, as I said. That's his Hanukkah song, no? It's his Hanukkah song, but it's like a slow down version. Um, I mean, I seek out all sorts of Jewish music, and I think it depends on the situation. You guys uh, all know my deep love for Ishai Rebo and uh, his brand of Israeli uh, pop-ish, but not quite pop, but you know, deep, deeply meaningful, um, ambivalent Jewish, uh, you know, not ambivalent about his Judaism, but ambivalent about this like full throated roar of like, oh, that's all I do. Um, but there's that whole strain of Israeli pop, Eviatar Banai, who is now doing a lot of observant music in the observant world, Hanan Ben Ari, who is one of the actors, I believe, on Fauda. 
I'm pretty sure, um, who has some really interesting albums out. So there's that Israeli world. There's the Jewish wedding music that comes out that, you know, it's fun to dance to. But at the end of the day, uh, it's not something that's actively like in my sphere. Um, and I don't know, there's a lot of like random albums that I've collected over the years um, that I gravitate towards. Some of them are not at all from the observant world. They're very liberal. Uh, some of them are very, very, very orthodox. I'm a huge fan of Lipa Schmelzer because I think that he's doing some really interesting um, genre bending uh, in Yiddish and doing some really cool stuff. Um, but there's a lot of music out there. Um, but to be fair, I think that I completely understand why none of those really would have made for a viral sensation um, because the combination of that dancing, the kids, the choreography, the singing really, you know, encapsulates together in 45 seconds, some a different world completely that Mordechai Ben David yeah. or Avraham Freed or any of the other Hasidic pop superstars would have been able to really um, make that leap into uh, TikTok stardom. So, mm -hmm. so give them credit for that. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I listen to everything, tons of music. Alana, what's on your... So I, I've been on a Jewish music bender, I think, for the last couple of years. Um, it started off with really getting into the Barry Sisters, classic <laughs> Yiddish music to like nice swingy tunes. I'm very into them. I really want to get one of their records on vinyl now that I have a record player again. Um, and then it opened this door. I was just like really craving that nostalgia and I, there's a, I feel so almost embarrassed to say this because it's so nerdy, but, um, there's this playlist on Spotify called Niggins and Tefillah and it's like really soulful, religious Jewish music and I'm really into it. And my favorite song on it is Gum Kielach by Masifta of Waterbury. Of course. And it's just Great like song. this like deeply soulful song that like makes me want to cry. Like it just, it really hits me in the nefesh, you know? So what I find interesting is that everybody uses the word soulful when it comes to religious music. Um, but because it's so deep, yeah, but I'd like, like to think the vocals that are so like uh. the singer songwriter in the coffee house that's doing their, you know, acoustic song that they wrote that they rewrote that they rewrote they're soulful too but nobody stops and says oh my god yeah, that music not? is so soulful nobody goes and says like i don't know ani defranco oh my god she's so soulful i guess i say it more for like jazz when i'm thinking of non-jewish music like jazz music like you know soul music funk yeah. music bruce springsteen has a whole album of soul covers coming out in a month and i'm very excited so i just had to put that in there yeah. because that's soul music and that's soulful but nobody would go and say bruce springsteen is soulful um it's sure. just this religious music masifta of waterbury oh they're so soulful they're so deep um i think that music that comes from the culture that you come from is going to hit you in a different way even if it's cheesier yeah. than you're used to having as part of it you had a question, Alana. Yeah, I was just going to ask you what you think makes music Jewish, because there's a very Oof. big difference between Oof. Maccabees Oof. versus Mishift of Waterbury, for example. Or Bob Dylan or Leonard Cohen or, or Bob Dylan. Christian music or Adam that, Sandler. Make, that hits you in a certain way as a Jew or whatever, you know, like, um, oh, my God, there's so many answers to this and there's no answer to this. I'm not even going to bother to really, like, try to define it because there there really isn't anything there because there's no one one rule. I don't know. It's uh, it's so amorphous and so up in the air. 
Um, but to bring it back to this TikTok, right? I think that this um, the question to ask about that in this context is what happens when you take something which is definitely Jewish and has like this strong Orthodox, um, you know, uh, point of view and bring it into a wider context. Um, wh- at what point does it lose its Jewishness? Um, and it just becomes this thing, this this phenomenon, this meme, this idea, this trend. Um, if Beyonce sampled it, right, uh, this Miami Boys Choir song, and then sang over it, would it matter what she sang over it to keep it as a Jewish song or not a Jewish song? So those are, you know, I think these are all big, difficult questions. And uh, I think we can keep keep our ear on the trend and keep seeing where it's going. I'd love to see where it's going. Um, I'm personally skeptical, but I'm willing to be proven wrong um, as I am about so many, many things in life. The song itself is great. The trend itself, eh, but that's my word for it. It's hilarious. Avi gives it a strong meh. What do you guys, uh, what's your, what's your su- summative uh, assessment of, the, uh, of it all? I look forward to seeing so much more of this again and again. It just put a smile on my face. And yes, like all trends, as I said before, it will disappear. It will fade into the background. But um, I, I would spend money to see these boys live in concert in Calgary. Alana's reaction right now. Alana's just shook <laughs> you know right that they're all. You know that they're all like not that age anymore. There are new boys in the choir, but not the ones that are becoming famous on TikTok. Yes, because boys' voices change. And that's the reason. Oh, re- no, I know. <laughs> that, I mean, to be fair, that's the only reason why we have uh, boys' choirs, which they will never cop to or like even be aware of consciously but the reason why boys choirs are so popular in the orthodox world are because uh if you want to have a soprano voice anywhere or like that that you know anything in that range uh you're having boys because they don't want to hear uh women singing which is we can bracket that and it's a whole different discussion um i'm just pointing it out as a as a piece of fact um but that's the only reason why it's there so every few years they gotta change it out and have boys yeah anyways yeah alana I think um, this is a funny moment in uh, social media, and we should just enjoy it while it's here and see what happens. I think it's totally unpredictable, kind of like what you said, Avi. Maybe this will catch on, maybe it won't, and you know what? If not, if anything, you know, people got to listen to some fun Jewish music, and they enjoyed it. Yeah, we we would love to hear what you think. Um, have you seen this trend? Have you seen this video? What's your favorite uh, reaction video of uh, of the Mambo Choir on TikTok or uh, your favorite comment? Uh, send this, send them in to us. We'd love to hear what you think or what you think uh, the best of the internet is. Send it to bonjour at the cjn.ca. Let us know your thoughts and ideas. Next up is our interview with Mordechai Lovitz. Before founding JQI, the organization that supports and empowers Jewish queer youth, Mordechai Lovovitz was a wee lad singing in the Miami Boys Choir. But unlike some of his peers, his musical career moved to Broadway. He then studied social work and is now the clinical director for JQI. He joins us from New York. Mordechai, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Hello. There were a few stops on the way. Uh, I'm sure. But you I know. was a fish farmer <laughs> for a year, too. And no joke, an actual fish farmer in uh, Portsmouth. New Hampshire. Is there singing involved there? Sea shanties? Uh, there's, always singing. there's always singing involved in, in whatever I do. There's I went to medical school for a little bit, uh, and there was a lot of singing involved there. And then many, 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 many years of yeshiva. But uh, For sure. So f- start by telling us, what was it actually like um, in the Miami Boys Choir? The Miami Boys Choir 
was uh, really a dream come true for me. Uh, I grew up in Brookline, Massachusetts, in a, a yeshivish black hat Orthodox family. Uh, some some would call ultra Orthodox. We were not allowed to listen to any secular music or the radio or anything like that. And this the connection to music and, in a way, to Judaism that we had was through these cassette tapes, these incredible, incredible cassette tapes uh, with Miami Boys Choir songs, the soloist, the the the, the choir itself, Yerachmiel Begun, who is the uh, choir leader. Um, the most of the songs were uh, verses from. Uh, from either davening or from prayer or sometimes from like random places like the Rambam and, but, but, but always, always rooted in uh, spirituality. Uh, even the English songs were very meaningful. Sometimes they were tear jerkers. The stuff really kind of like developed my soul. And I never thought that I would be able to be a part of the Miami boys choir. Uh, but when my family moved to New York uh, in 1990, uh, and then I, I went to camp in Stechemed, which is this uh, camp uh, in Israel for a year. And I was part of the choir in Stechemed. And Ailey Teitelbaum, who was the camp director, heard me. And he said, you should, you should try out for the Miami Boys Choir. And I was like, no, I'm never, I'm not good enough for that. And, uh, but he, he really kind of pushed me to try out. And I did, and I made it. And, and for me, like I said, it was a dream come true. It was so meaningful to me. And I loved singing. I thought I was good enough, but I wasn't living in New York, so I couldn't do it. Heavy's dreams were ruined. But it is interesting that before the Miami Boys Choir, Yerachmiel did live in Canada. In Toronto. Yeah, Toronto absolutely. Boys Choir, correct. Which was also quite, quite famous. Um, mm -hmm. And quite good, too. The, the songs in Toronto Boys Choir are incredible. In fact, uh, in some of uh, the concerts that we did, we did Toronto Boys Choir medleys. And some of my favorite solos were from, mm -hmm. were from those sure. songs. And one thing I, I do want to clarify for our for our listeners, too, is the Miami's Boy, Boys Choir is actually no longer, it's not based in Florida or Miami. It has moved up to New York. So when you hear that name, some people might think, oh, wh what are they talking about New York? It's actually based now out of New York, correct? Right, right. It was based in Miami, actually, for less time than it was based in Toronto. <laughs> it was yeah. um, uh, the... the just goes to show that Miami's exotic enough, but Toronto is, like, way off the radar. We'd never too exotic. if you had it, like, the Toronto voice. Program. I think to a certain extent, like, there is... I mean, there, there's a notion when you grow up Orthodox, and it's a terrible expression, but it, I think it's an expression that we kind of adopted of the out-of-town Jews... Um, the idea of when you're growing up outside of New York, you're considered out of town because New York is the town. But one of the nice, actually, stereotypes about out of town Orthodox Jews is that we kind of like don't deal. We didn't deal with all of the the silly politics of Judaism, and then it was it was more of a wholesome Jewish experience when we would meet. Uh, 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 New York Jews, we would seem to have less edge about us. And I think that there's something about out-of-townish that Yerachmiel kind of kept. And I think uh, that's my theory on why he kept the word Miami Boys Choir. And also, it sounds great. Miami Boys Choir! Yeah. And we bring sunshine to your life. But, um, but yes, we are very much a New York choir. We met in Brooklyn, in Borough Park, every single Sunday. 
and they I think they still meet every Sunday on 18th Avenue. So Miami Boys Choir uh, was actually one of the things that takes out of town Jews and connects them all. Right. You could be living right. in Montreal and you meet a Jew from, I don't know, Chicago and you could just start singing. Right. We need you. We need your tefillah each and every year. And then they would just be able to sing along. Correct. They, they remember it. I really do think that there's a real connection between out of town, the out of town experience and things like Miami Boys Choir for Orthodox Jews. Um, and and also the touring was amazing. Like we went to Montreal, we went to Toronto. Mm-hmm. I had this amazing shot. I would have probably, I mean, as as a as a twelve year old, I don't think I, I I had any other reason to go to Montreal because I didn't have any family there. Uh, but it but now but then I spent a Shabbos there and I met really cool people, people that I know today. You probably met me. Maybe maybe I did. If you were part Anyways. of, I think the tour in nineteen ninety three or nineteen ninety two when sure. we went to Montreal for a Shabbos. Um, I actually think, it, I think it was 1992, because I think Montreal was my first concert. Um, my first concert ever. Uh, uh, and and my first solo uh, was in Montreal. Uh, and what was your solo? The solo was in a song called Chatzos Lila. Of course. Chatzos Lila. David loves it this. Incredible. It was. A be- it happens to be a really, really beautiful song. I sing it today. I just listened to it last night, in fact. Um, and I mean, it, it also it's a testament to his his songwriting skills that these songs really stick with you. Uh, but also, so so wait, it's actually a funny story. Uh, it was my first solo ever. I was my first concert ever. Mm-hmm. My first solo ever. My solo was the low part. Okay, so in the um, all I had up to kind of uh, rehearse was the CD of uh, of Torah today with Chatzos Laila on it, and I assumed that the last solo of Chaverani goes into the high part seamlessly. Uh, and it's the same soloist. So he goes, Chaverani, and then it goes, Chatzos, Lila. And I-, I thought I thought that when he gave me that solo, it was the low part and the high part. So there I was, this like 12-year-old kid, uh, I think maybe even 11 at this time, and, I, uh, and I'm singing the low part, and I'm really, really nervous, and I'm really quiet, and I'm, I'm thinking, okay, whatever, I'm not sure if this even sounds good, like I'm on a mic for the first time. And then all of a sudden, I finish the low part, and I start singing the high part, and I sound amazing! And I'm like, what is going on? I must have, like, found my groove. I look over, and it's like the star soloist, Nathan Stark, is singing the high part. And your mic is cut. <laughs> And my mic is. <laughs> what I so find, I screwed yeah. up on my first solo. What and, I find fascinating uh, is that you still refer to it as low part and high part as opposed to verse yeah. and chorus, which is no, like I, the rest of the world. But in the yeah. Orthodox world, it's, it's low, low part, part, high part, high part. Of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. Low part, high part. Now, Mordechai. Yes. Yeah. When when you were doing this and you were making this wonderful music, even if you were cut off by the by by the mic, I, I'm curious if you thought you were making this music only for for Orthodox people, or if you were, tr- or if there was some semblance of, hey, we're trying to make this music cool for the non-Jewish population. Was that at all entering your mind? <laughs> Certainly not as a twelve year old, <laughs> but um, no. The even uh, it was clear from Yerachmiel, uh, who wrote all the songs and. Uh, 
and and basically did everything. This was his baby. But this was for Jews. I mean, this this was this was not pop music, right? This was very different. It was a different animal than pop music. It was a spiritual experience uh, of extremely holy and special words, even the English words, because the ideas were, I think he would say, was, were holy. And uh, to lift your spirits, to lift your neshama, and to create a Jewish experience um, with, with, with everyone together. I don't think there ever was a sense, uh, at least um, I never got the sense, that there was, that, that, non-Jewish people would either listen to the music or even enjoy the music or have anything to do with the music. Uh, it just wasn't for, it was like, you know, you know, that, um, that old, there's probably too many insider references. Yeah. You know, that you know, that in, in, in terms of, you the- know, that sneaker company was called FUBU for us, mm-hmm. by us, for the black community. It felt very oh, yeah. FUBU, yeah. <laughs> like for us, by us. Sure. Like they weren't trying to explain a lot of the insider references, like in the songs. Yeah. I think, Right. It wasn't schlock rock that was trying to say, hey, Judaism is cool. It was like, here's something with your language for you to, to enjoy. Yeah. It's going to be enjoying it. Yeah. I, I think that growing up Orthodox in general, the, the, this idea of engaging in the secular world seemed, ve- would, seemed very, very foreign. Um, certainly, we had, there was no interest in in sharing what was so special to us about like the, the davening and these little private moments that definitely was not something that we'd share with non-Jewish people. Um, and I mean, if non-Jewish people are interested in learning about Judaism and learning about the meaning of all these things, learning about the halachas of why these are all boys, why, you know, why these songs, why we don't say God's name in vain in these songs. Why, I mean, there's so much, uh, in this, uh, so if someone really wanted to kind of do a deep dive and to appreciate us, I'm sure it would be appreciated. But the idea of any of a non-Jewish person just jiving to uh, these these songs because they're cute would seem ridiculous. And I think it's ridiculous now, too. <laughs> I was going to ask you how you feel about it all going viral recently. I mean, I think it's I think it's 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 cute. I like that. um I like the focus on on the music. I think that the music is really good and I think the songs are great. And I'm glad that. um uh, and is having a moment in the sun. Uh, certainly among Jews, I think, uh, it, 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 it kind of brings their choir back. I'm sure they'll, they'll get a even bigger concerts. They're getting more streams. They're getting uh, more attention. And, and the Jewish music world is now more crowded than it used to be. So it's actually very important for him. Um, because, uh, there are, there are many, many more choirs today than there were, uh, back in the nineties. So, um, so it probably is really helpful for the choir and for him. But the idea that like non-Jewish people are listening to it is just, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's strange. Um, it's super strange for a million reasons. One, it's strange like when adults are kind of really focusing and obsessing over prepubescent boys. Like that's like we're 11 year olds and 12 year olds. That's super creepy. Notice how they're not. They're not obsessing over the Chevra or like uh, um, Mordechai ben David or Shweki or, uh, or, or or even the Maccabees, right? All of those could be even much more like K-pop or all these. And yet, no, 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 it's it's the prepubescent boys. They're the really interesting people. There's, there's a video on their YouTube uh, channel that's a wedding that they did in Montreal about 10 years yeah. ago where they all performed at this wedding. And I'm thinking to myself like, what kind of bride says, you know what I need at my wedding? I need 
meet a bunch of 12 year old boys. <laughs> well, because wait, that's different. I think that when <laughs> Jews, when Jewish adults love the choir, they don't love it for that. There it's, it's for all the reasons that I said before, because we do represent something very wholesome, something very connected. To their sure, but it's not wedding entertainment. I don't know. That's neither here nor there. <laughs> that's either here nor there. But for an adult non Jewish person or a person who never grew up with the choir, to focus and this to be their kind of introduction to kind of Jewish music and and this kind of familiarity that's shown with uh, each soloist, like you have these guys like, yeah, David Hershkowitz is so awesome. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, my thing... Like- I think that only works because it's so wrong. I think that's, you know, I, I brought this up before where I was like, you know, the, the reason why the Chevra or Shweki would never have this virality on TikTok is because it just seems like pop in a different language. Um, not necessarily great pop, but it's okay pop and it's fun and the songs are good. But this, the video with the choreography that is awkward and the costumes and the singing and the from accent and not the Hebrew that you're used to, it's just so many layers of wrong. Right, it's exotic that, and strange. That somebody just goes and says, oh, this. Right, no, 100%. But just, but take two steps back and think about if, um, if an adult white man started doing this to 12-year-old Somali African girls doing African dances, a video of African dances, and like started having the same, oh, it's so cool, yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's Brenda, and that's, you know, Sashili, and that's, oh, they're great job, like, it'd be super creepy and super weird. Uh, and then start rating them as well, too. Rating them, oh, right. Yeah. Rating them these, like, right, like th- them doing, like, cultural African dances, and they're 12-year-olds, and, and, you know, and white adults are, you know, it, it would it would kind of, I think it would rub you the wrong way, it would rub people the wrong way. It also, like, people are like, oh, it's like, you know, it, it it's just a matter of appreciation, and they're really loving the music. Yeah, to a certain extent, but they're also making fun of it. Let's just be honest. Like, I, I think that there's this real sense of all of us not wanting to accept the obvious here. Uh, as somebody who has been teased profusely in my life for being a feminine kid in the Orthodox community, or just in general, a feminine boy, you gotta know when people are making fun of you. Like, stop it. Don't stop, stop. Oh, no, no, they're not making fun of you. Yes, they are. They're making fun of you. And it may be in fun and all, all good taste light fun but they're making fun of you and they're making fun of your children i mean so i'd like to talk a bit about your experience growing up joining this this group i want to know what was it like then growing up as more effeminate as a a queer kid in this type of organization in the orthodox it's very difficult listen it's 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 not you know i i think that when you grow certainly now, as an adult, I notice that in every extended family or in every, like, if I go to another family's chasana or go to another family, there's always one kid, let's say it's a boy, who kind of everybody knows is, like, really flamboyant and he has limp wrists and he talks in a high voice and he, like, oh, hangs around with the other girls. And it's also the same thing sometimes with girls, who uh, young girls who don't fit into any stereotype. And everybody kind of, like, hush-hush is like, oh, yeah, I don't know what it is, you know, and, and there's this notion of, well, he'll just, you know, if, if they're lucky, he'll grow out of it, or he'll just find himself. But meanwhile, the everyday experience of this kid, and I know because I was this kid, is torture. You get made fun of everywhere you go. I got made fun of You gotta be careful, though, because... 
sometimes that kid is like me and is actually not gay. Sure, it is not the limp wrist, but I'm a nine-year-old. Exactly. Right. We're talking sometimes sometimes they end up gay, sometimes they end up not gay, but it's not the point. It's not the point what sexuality they have. The point is is that for some strange reason, if you don't fit uh what this notion of what a boy should act like, you are tortured. Like just mm-hmm. and and God forbid you should fight back. Then you know. Did it help that you were in the choir? No, I, mean, I mean, no. Now it's allowed. Now it's your outlet. I, I think the choir. I think it gave me a lot of confidence, and I loved the choir. And um, and there was teasing in the choir too. <laughs> there was, uh, okay. There was no is teasing. there is there a secret club of like out Miami Boys Choir kids that are like? No, there's no secret club, but there are a bunch of. Uh, uh, ex Miami Boys Choirs who are now out, and I'm sure there are even more that are closeted. I mean, you have to understand the, we, you know, when we talk about gay people in the Orthodox community, 90% of them are married heterosexually and in the closet, right? Like, that's what, when gay, we're like, oh, gay people, gay people are not like, I'm the exception, or like the people in the want you, or the, these kids who are out are like the exception, exception, exception. The other thousand of people, are actually hiding and lying to your children and lying to your, and pretending. And that's really where gay people are in the Orthodox community, right? It's a bunch of gay men married to women, most of them having sex on the side, most of them bringing all sorts of diseases to their wives, or a bunch of gay women married to men, or a bunch of asexual men married to women, or transgender men married to, you know, they're all just, they're there, they're just, they, they're forced to feel closeted. They're forced to feel like they, it's a lie. And they're forced to, you know, like create these like strange fake house of cards, which many times do fall apart and many times do not. I mean, that's the story of, of, of LGBTQ people in the Orthodox community. The exception, exception, exception are people like me or people that you know who come out. Um, and then, of course, most of them in the Orthodox community are treated, you know, were treated like, you know, enemies or treated like some sort of threat, which is ridiculous because, I mean, if you ask me, the real threat are the people, the, the, the gay men that are marrying your daughters. But, <laughs> but who am I to judge? <laughs> I, for one, would love to see all of that group of you guys uh, reform and uh, do a Miami men's choir Miami Gay Choir. Yeah, yeah, the the gay men Miami. The gay men Miami chorus. I will say uh, it was really, although I I, I don't know, and I, I I would never speak on behalf of Yerachmiel Begunz or what he thinks about um, LGBTQ people, but I never ever in the choir was asked by Yerachmiel to man up on stage or to uh, lower my voice or to not be so flamboyant. Never. He just wanted us to. He wanted us to, to really just uh, bloom on stage, you know, be as fabulous as, as we are. And that was really... That's, that's the point of the stage yeah, show, that's the right? Point was of... to do these dances and to put on these costumes right. and to be high-pitched because yes. we couldn't have the... Yeah. And he, you know, he really did. He wanted us to um, smile more and, and open our eyes and like, what? You know, and, and jazz hands. And for me to hear that from, you know, from a leader in the Orthodox community, because I considered him a leader. He was also a rabbi. He was a Rebbe. He used to learn with us. Um, that was nice. It was nice to hear somebody encourage, encourage all your eccentricities to kind of these eccentricities that perhaps off stage were, were not considered valuable on stage were considered so valuable. 
So that was really precious um, for me and, and adorable. And it is adorable. That's the thing. Like, and I, and I think that there's a certain sense of like, if you're, you're with it, we can kind of even poke fun at it because it's also a little ridiculous, but in the, in the same way that it's okay when you, when you go home for Yumtuf with your family, that it's fun. Like you can make fun of your funny uncle or, you know, or, or make fun of the thing that your grandmother says or make fun of your nephew and nieces, you know, when they do something weird and fun and that's okay. But if someone from the outside of the family starts doing that, that's not, that's not okay anymore. So that's the thing. Like, I don't, I think that, that it's, it's okay to enjoy the choir and it's okay to even make fun of the choir because it's a little ridiculous, but it's, it, it's, it, it should be done from a sense of, of familial uh, insider, you know, this is us, right? I, I have, I have, uh, I have a vested interest in this. I'm, I am invested. I, I'm making fun of it because it's part of me. That, that is kind of an okay way to kind of make fun of the choir or ironically enjoy the choir. But if you are completely an outsider, you don't understand the words, you don't understand the meaning, you don't understand why there are little boys singing, you don't understand anything about it, and you just think, oh, this is funny and quirky and weird, and, and, but, but a cool beat then you're just, you're just an asshole. Well, I'm just curious with your organization, you know, uh, uh, JQY, have you ever thought about doing some outreach to the MBQ boys and sort of saying, Hey, this is a conversation we can have. Do you think that would ever be, Did you uh, just say MBQ uh, away? MB, Miami boys, queers, Miami boys, queer. Choir. <laughs> oh, uh, M- <laughs> he said MBQ. I was getting, I was getting acronyms all mixed up. So <laughs> I like MB, uh, Miami I love MBQ. JQY, MBQ, Miami boys, queer. Yes. Um, we are, uh, JQI is, uh, you know, has a large population of, of LGBTQ kids and kids who don't identify as any of those labels, um, uh, already part of JQI. Um, uh, you know, we're open to everybody and certainly anybody between the ages of 13 and 23, um, who feel that they can benefit from, our programs and our services. A lot of them are in person, but a lot of them are also online. Uh, we have virtual drop-in center and virtual groups, and p- we have people um, coming in from all over the world, uh, and certainly from every community. Uh, I don't think that you know to kind of focus on Miami Boys Choir. You know, it seems like you know that's like certainly anybody from the Miami Boys Choir, anybody from 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 no matter how from uh, you grew up or no matter how modern you grew up. Uh, if you are queer or if you just start questioning or if you just feel like you want to really be in an environment where it's not, nobody's judging you for who you are and you're celebrated for who you are, whatever that means, then I think you'll find uh, a very warm place in JQI. That's the idea Beautiful. of JQI. All right. Well, Mordechai, <laughs> thanks for coming on Bonjour Chai. And uh, you can check out JQI at jqi.org. .org. JQI.org. Uh, That's it. It's so easy. JQI.org. Keep on, you know, especially from the from community, even if, even if you're not from the from community, I think for this is all for, for all Jews. Keep on listening to the Miami Boys Choir. It's great music. It is fun. And uh, just also, I think, just encourage your kids to be themselves and be able to, like, paint from every color uh, that they can and be and shine as bright as they, as, as they will. And, and that's the way to get like just your kids to be the best that they can be. And that's the goal. Beautiful. All right. Thank you. Um, thank you. And enjoy. 
There's a classic teaching about the High Holy Days, encapsulated in the liturgy as Rosh Hashanah Yikatevu Uviyom Tzom Kippur Yechatemu. On Rosh Hashanah it is written, and on Yom Kippur it is sealed. Our annual performance review happens on Rosh Hashanah, but depending on who we are, we have a week until Yom Kippur to repent and change ourselves. Or in the event that we are what is referred to as a Benoni, someone whose good is equally balanced by their misdeeds, we have that week to tip the scales in our favor. Of course, this leads the rabbis to ask the inevitable question, what happens if our actions during the week leading up to Yom Kippur are also equally balanced so as to maintain our status as a Benoni on Yom Kippur? Well, the rabbinic imagination has an answer. You have until Hoshana Rabbah, the last day of Sukkot, to create a favorable balance. This is why on Hoshana Rabbah, the Chazan dresses in white and reenacts a quasi-Yom Kippur service. As an aside, in case some of you guys are wondering, yes, the rabbis did ask the inevitable turtles all the way down question, what happens if you are still a Benoni after Hoshana Rabbah? Well, in that case, they say that the fact that you couldn't get your act together in three whole weeks is a strike against you and casts the decisive vote. But in any case, we actually have received an overwhelming response to our sermon slam. We have decided to give you all a chance to hear some fine sermons all the way through Sukkot. Remember, you can still vote for your favorite sermon by emailing us at bonjour at the cjn.ca. We really want to hear which sermons inspired you, which had the best delivery, which had the most originality. So listen to them all, send in your votes. Here we go with round three of the Great Canadian Sermon Slam. First up is Rabbi Dr. Elise Goldstein. She's one of Canada's most celebrated rabbis. A graduate of Hebrew Union College, Rabbi Goldstein began her career at Holy Blossom Temple, making her the second woman ever to serve as a rabbi in Canada. In 1991, Rabbi Goldstein founded Kolel, the Adult Center for Liberal Jewish Learning, where she was its director and principal teacher for 20 years. And in 2011, she formed City Shul, a new reform synagogue in downtown Toronto, where she has served ever since. This sermon is one Rabbi Goldstein gave on Rosh Hashanah 2020. The pandemic was at its height, and while she knew her congregation couldn't meet in person, Rabbi Goldstein couldn't see why they couldn't meet in cars. Speaking from the massive screen of the Ontario Place drive-in, here's Rabbi Dr. Elise Goldstein. Well... You thought you had problems, right? Yesterday's Torah portion has Abraham send Hagar and Ishmael away into the desert, and the Torah speaks about her experience in these verses. When the water was gone from the skin, she left the child under one of the bushes and went and sat down at a distance, a bow shot away, for she thought, let me not look on as the child dies. And sitting afar, she burst into tears, and God heard the cry of the boy, and God opened Hagar's eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and let the boy drink. There was a well of water right where and right when she needed it, but she didn't know it was there, and she couldn't see it. Her anxiety kept her eyes down. Her panic kept her eyes down. Her despair kept her eyes down. Friends, let us open our eyes wide this year to see the wells we might not yet have seen, our inner strength, our resilience, our kindness, our patience. Let us lift each other up to see the wells that we can share. And like Hagar, we can look up. We will look up. And then, today's Torah portion offers us almost the same scenario, this time with Abraham and Isaac. An angel of the Lord called from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, and he answered, Here I am. And he said, 
Do not raise your hand against the boy or do anything to him. When Abraham looked up, suddenly his eye fell upon a ram, caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering in place of his son. There was a ram caught in the thicket right where and right when he needed it. But he didn't know it was there and he couldn't see it. He was too distressed to look up. He was too busy to look up. He was too frenetic to look up. Friends, let us look up this year. Let us look up and see the ram caught in the thicket that we may not yet have seen. Our willingness to sacrifice, our faith in the community, our ability to pivot. And we will lift each other up to see the rams that we can offer one another. Like Abraham, we can look up and we will look up. Rashi teaches, that ram was predestined to be there from the very first days of creation. It has been ready and waiting. Our strength has been there all the time, waiting for us to take it and use it. Ibn Ezra comments, he noticed the ram only after it had become entangled by its horns. Our strength comes to us sometimes only after we've been tangled up, bruised by the thorns, and tired of waiting. Datsukainim writes, Ram's horns are open-ended at both ends. They remind the Jewish people that though they will seemingly enter a dark tunnel, there is light at the end. Our strength will show us the light. Isn't it ironic? Both of our ancestors, Abraham and Hagar, were too exhausted, too frightened, too caught up in their own pain to just look up. They were people just as we are, who set out into the unknown without a map, with confusing and conflicting instructions on what to do and where to go. It was painful and it was complicated and unbelievably challenging with tests that would tax any human being. No wonder they lost hope. And then things that they never imagined possible happened. They happened and to us as well. Here we are in a drive-in on the holiest day of the year with cameras rolling so we can live stream to all of those watching us also at home. I'll tell you the truth. I was definitely absent the day in seminary that they gave us a lesson on Rosh Hashanah in a drive-in. All of you looked up and you saw well and you said, yes, Hineni, I'm here and you came. So I'm posing this question. Where is the well that you haven't seen yet? Where is your ram caught in the thicket? Remember, our strength comes to us only after we've been tangled, bruised by the thorns, and tired of waiting.
Remember, no matter how alone it feels sometimes, both Torah portions are telling us we are not alone. Remember, we've made phone calls, voice-to-voice -voice interactions. Neighbors have played live music on their porches. We've danced, we've sung for a hundred nights, and we've cheered the frontline workers. Online classes, lectures, services, concerts, virtual tours are offered everywhere for us. They're offered everywhere for us to find one another in the thicket, albeit in small Hollywood squares, and think about it. We are all engaged in the largest acts of widespread care and concern in possibly all of human history. Tonight, we heard the shofar, which can be both the voice of trauma and the voice of redemption. How is it possible that it is both voices? The Arucha Shulchan, a 19th century compilation of the origins of Jewish law, written by Rabbi Yechiel Michael Epstein, explains that there are two different types of blasts that are mentioned in the Torah. One is tikiyah, which is always mentioned in the context of joy, simcha. And the other blast mentioned in the Torah is teruah, which he says is the language of a broken cry. We blow both sounds several times, interspersed with each other, tikiyah, teruah, Tekiah, when we blow the shofar, we give voice to joy, then suffering, then joy, hope, then hopelessness, then hope, celebration, then mourning, then celebration. Tekiah, teruah, tekiah, it's a club sandwich. And what do we end on? Tekiah gedola a blast of pure, simple longing and pure, simple hope. Our shofar gives voice to the pain and the fear and the grief, and it gives voice to the joy and the victory and redemption. It calls out to us and it calls out to the world and to God. The voice reverberates through us, allowing us to feel an entire panoply of emotions. It gives voice to all that we have felt these past months and all that we may feel in the months ahead. Tonight, the call of the shofar is the beep in our spiritual watch, the buzz from our spiritual phone, the ping from our spiritual Google calendar that reminds us Look up, look up. May the <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> may, may we look up and may the Tekiah Gadola. We will soon hear to conclude this amazing service. Be the reminder that we need to see the well, to get water, to see the ram, to feel our strength. 
As we conclude this, who would have believed it? Rosh Hashanah service in a drive-in. We see each other through the thicket, through the desert, and we know we are not alone. Next up on the Sermon Slam, we have Rabbi Josh Schwartz. Born in Albany, Rabbi Schwartz studied at NYU where he received a master's degree in Jewish studies with a concentration in Jewish mysticism. He is the co-author of the Torah of Music and the editor of the illustrated Pirkei Avot, the first Talmudic graphic novel. Since receiving ordination in 2019, Rabbi Schwartz has served as the rabbi of the Beth Lida in Toronto. In his sermon, we hear about how to just let go and trust the system. Here's Rabbi Joshua Schwartz. There is a fearful symmetry between the path laid out before the people of Israel and the path their teacher Moses must walk. As Israel prepares itself to cross the border and enter the promised land, Moses is asked to make complementary preparations, but in the opposite direction. As Isaac Newton taught us, for every action there must be an equal and opposite reaction. As Israel progresses into the next chapter of their story, Moses must ready himself to depart from his role as shepherd of the people from their infancy into their adolescence, through the wilds of the desert, and from this life. From God, in one of their intimate conversations, Moses receives a gift that most likely did not feel like one at the time. God says to him, Behold, the time of your death draws near. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting so I can instruct him. Moses, who has faced time and again the challenge of cooperation, who has had to learn to let go and to trust, is tasked with just that work, to pass on his leadership role to his disciple Joshua. The Nitziv, in his commentary Ha'amek Davar, points out that Joshua was a prophet as well, so there was no need for God's explicit command for investing him with his new role, since he presumably knew already. Rather, the purpose of the command was not its content, but rather its context. The gift God gave Moshe was a chance to be able to come to terms with what it means to let go of what he was holding on to and to move forward. The challenge particular to Moses is sharpened all the more by what God foretells in the Psukim immediately following. Israel, predicts God, now settled in a land of their own, will repeat the same old mistakes it's made while sojourning in the desert. They will betray God and stray after false idols. And the Holy One will not be passive in response, but will grow wrathful and will suspend the covenant with the chosen people, leaving them to wonder if they have been abandoned by their deity. God will conceal the divine presence from them, leaving them with no one on which to rely. Pointedly, this report of a future soon to come was given only to Moses, with Joshua not yet included in that circle of trust. For Moses, what could be a more personal and acute challenge than this? To have to face that one did not succeed in one's task, to know that there is something coming beyond one's ability to help. In short, Moses' challenge is to accept his limits. A related story is told in the Talmud in Masechet Menachot on folio 21.9b. When Moshe ascends to heaven, he sees God affixing tagin, crowns, to the calligraphed letters of the Torah. Moses is gobsmacked and asks why the Torah could not be given without these jots and tittles. God informs him that a future teacher, Rabbi Akiva, will be able to derive heaps and heaps of interpretations and halachot from these seeming fripperies. 
Moshe demands that God show him this supposed genius who will surpass him. And God grants him a vision of Rabbi Akiva's Beit Midrash, in which his proficiency is in full display. His legs cut out from under him, Moshe feels faint. But, in his weakened state, he is able to hear a student ask the master where he derived his novel interpretation. And Rabbi Akiva responds that it is a halacha l'Moshe misinai, a law received by Moses at Sinai. And upon hearing this, Moshe is revived. In this Talmudic tale, Moshe Rabbeinu begins with a sense of deficiency, confronted with an aspect of Torah kept from him, a time-released text that will only unlock to a future reader. But he is revived when he is assured that these innovative readings are not disconnected or discreet from the Torah that he brought down. Rather, Rabbi Akiva's novelae are only possible because of the chain of tradition in which he is embedded. In truth, under the sun, there is nothing that is ever truly new, and accordingly, nothing ever really ends. In the Vilna Gaon's interpretation, God wanted Moshe to die with a desiring spirit precisely because of the lack that generates it. Desire is a mode of consciousness that recognizes the excess of existence, what more there is out there. It was the most challenging lesson of his life. But God needed Moshe to learn that he shined, but he is only one radiant link in a chain that transcends him. What a gift to be given the chance to change the lack one feels, to transform it into the joy of the excess that exceeds any grasp. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or quake before them, for Hashem your God walks with you. God will not fail or forsake you. These are beautiful words of reassurance, especially in Moses' moment of insureness. But they seem to contradict the prophecy we discussed earlier, that God will abandon the people and, following their own failure, conceal the divine presence from them. Above, we noted that Moses' journey mirrored that of the people he led, and indeed, it even resonates with the very land itself, as well as the moment in which we find ourselves today. How can the lessons Moshe learns in his final moments translate to what the people and to what we need to learn as well? For one of the final commands given before Israel enters the land, God highlights a new feature of the Shemitah cycle. God says, at the end of seven years, at the appointed time of the Shemitah year on Sukkot, when all of Israel comes to witness the presence of God in the chosen place, read to them this Torah facing all of Israel for their ears. As he faces his imminent death, Moses is told that the Torah will go on, and it is Torah that will guide the people. During the Shemitah, when the entire land is given up, when all people realize the extent of their influence on the earth and on each other, that is when we too will be forced to confront our limits. But we are not left abandoned and alone. In the year we must let go, God gives us the Torah again, with every Shemitah a new Sinai. Gather the people, the men, the women, the children, and the newcomers within your gates, so they will hear and so they will learn. The original lawgiver is passing on, but the instruction he initiated lives on beyond him. The Torah is not and cannot be the property of the one who transmitted it. It must belong to the people as a whole, for them to truly own. 
It is Torah that provides for us the model of continuity and self-transcendence Moshe Rabbeinu had to learn. Despite its front and back covers, its first and last words, a text never truly begins or ends. It's stewed inside its writer as the influence for mentors, libraries, teachers, an entire web of influence. And it brews inside us long after we finish reading it. Next up, we have Rabbi Dan Moskovitz, a graduate of AJU, American Jewish University, and Hebrew Union College. Rabbi Moskovitz is chair of the Reform Rabbis of Canada. Since 2013, he has served as senior rabbi at Temple Shalom in Vancouver. In his sermon, Rabbi Moskovitz speaks about the importance of good faith listening and learning from those we disagree with. We are fractured, we are splintered, we are broken, we are divided into so many different camps and tribes, more and more opposing groups. And the more we try to purify those groups that we identify with, the more we further split our society more and more. Social media does this inherently. That in itself is bad, but what has made our current social discourse so destructive, so much worse, is that there is no incentive to understand where the other is coming from. There is nothing to encourage anyone to compromise, nothing to encourage anyone to strive to reach consensus. In fact, it's just the opposite. In our social media-fueled, hyper-polarized, who-can-shout-the-loudest-and-be-the-most-provocative world, a world that we created, we created for ourselves, Our politics have become our religion. And so changing your mind becomes an act of heresy. Our politics have become our religion. And so if you change your mind, you've committed an act of heresy. Even listening to the other side gets you labeled a heretic. Grounds for excommunication. Banishment from your own side. We have come to believe that dialoguing with those that we disagree with, watching their news, reading their opinions, we've come to believe that it's a sin. It's not a sin. It's a mitzvah. Being familiar with, conversant with the other side of the debate is actually a commandment. It is our obligation. Debate and difference of opinion are not the enemy. They are how we arrive at truth. The Hebrew word for truth, emet, makes this point all by itself. The word is constructed of three letters, aleph, mem, and tav. The first, the middle, and the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Thus, we arrive at the truth only, only when we incorporate all ends of the spectrum of thought. Left, right, and middle. Jewish tradition, the Jewish tradition of engaging with so many texts which are contradictory to each other, it's actually created a Jewish way of thinking that I think is perfectly suited to address the widening and deepening divide between us and between groups of us. There's a story in the Talmud about passionate and often heated debates. The Talmud is filled with passionate and heated debates. These between Rabbi Yochanan and his brother-in-law, Resh Lakish. Back and forth, Yochanan and Lakish would argue day in and day out. And it was during one of their passionate and sharp-tongued debates that Yochanan upset Resh Lakish for the last time. Yochanan was hurt, and so was Lakish, which was not unusual. But this time, before they could make up, 
Lachish dies. Yochanan is inconsolable at the loss of his study partner, and so his students, they decide to send him a new study partner, an accommodating scholar known for his calming manner. The name of this replacement partner was Eleazar. So the Talmud tells us that no matter what Yochanan said about any passage of law or anything in, in Torah, Eleazar would always agree with him. He would agree with every single word that Yochanan said. And this would go on for the better part of a week. Yochanan would make a point. Elazar would say, I agree. Yochanan would make another point. I would say, you're right. Yochanan would say, yes, absolutely. Every single time. Finally, Yochanan can't take it anymore. And he lashes out at Elazar. Elazar, Elazar, you are no Lakish. You are no Lakish. Lakish would respond to me with 24 difficulties to each word that I said. And that I would give 24 answers to each of those words which produced a fuller comprehension of the law for both of us. But to everything that I say, you say, I agree with you. Elazar, Elazar, I already know that what I say is right. I'm the one who's saying it. I need a friend who is wise enough to explain to me why I'm wrong. And then... The Talmud records, Yochanan rent his clothing, he ripped his garments, and he cried. He wept and cried until he died. Some say he went mad. We don't need more friends who agree with us. We don't need more likes on our Facebook or Instagram posts. We need to test our views in the marketplace of conflicting facts and opinions. We need to surround ourselves with people like Lakish, not fan clubs of Elazar's. 19th century British philosopher John Stuart Mill wrote, in all of the great political and social struggles of our time, each side is correct in what they assert, but wrong in what they deny. If each could recognize the claims of the other, there would be little left but to have a complete picture. Now it's time for Rabbi Alana Krieger-Lapidus. A native Calgarian, Rabbi Lapidus received her ordination from the Jewish Spiritual Leaders Institute in New York. She is involved with Beth Tzedek of Calgary, is the Jewish community chaplain for Calgary, and has an independent rabbinic practice where she goes by the moniker of the Rocky Mountain Rabbi. In her sermon, Rabbi Krieger-Lapidus uses a Hindu fable to show what chesed really is. When I was young, I admired clever people. Now that I am old... I admire kind people. Abraham Joshua Heschel There is a wonderful ancient story from the Hindu tradition told by the spiritual teacher Mark Nepo in his Book of Awakening. It tells of an old holy man who doesn't know he is holy, much like one of the 36 tzaddikim, holy souls, from our tradition. Every day this old holy man would go to the river Ganges to pray. One day, the old man was reciting his prayers when he noticed a spider struggling on its back in the water. The old man reached out, turned the spider over, and cupped the spider gently in his hands to place it back on shore. But the spider was a poisonous spider, and it bit the old man. Since the man was so holy, the poison didn't penetrate although the bite still did sting. 
The next day, the old man went back to the river and saw the same spider struggling again. The holy man did the same thing, reached out to gently take the spider to safety, but the spider bit him again. This happened over and over, again and again, until one day the spider finally spoke to the old man. Don't you understand? I will bite you every time because I am a poisonous spider and that is what I do. The holy man looked kindly at the spider and said, Oh, I do. It is you, my friend, who does not understand. You see, I will save you every time because that is what I do. Our Jewish tradition speaks often about kindness. In fact, the concept of chesed appears more than 190 times in the Torah, leading many Jewish thinkers to hold that the value of chesed is Judaism's primary ethical virtue. But chesed is hard to properly translate. There's no direct correlation in our language. English versions usually try to represent it with such words as loving kindness or mercy or even loyalty. But the full meaning of the word cannot be conveyed without context. Contemporary Jewish scholar and teacher Aviva Zornberg has said chesed is not just loving kindness as it's usually translated, but is also courage and imagination. In one of our tradition's most important books, Pirkei Avot, The Ethics of Our Fathers, Shimon the Righteous is quoted as saying, The world is based on three things, on the Torah, on the service of God, and upon acts of loving kindness. Dr. Yvette Altmiller adds this commentary, Kindness isn't optional in Judaism. Reaching out to others is a key part of working to make the world a better place. Being kind is integral to what it means to be a Jew. I don't know about you, but coming back into the world in the post-COVID age has not been easy. We've had to relearn how to socialize and be polite in company. Interactions are awkward, people are stressed, and maybe a little crabby. For the past few years, we've kept our masks on and our heads down and our distance kept, just trying to survive. Now that we are out and about, we must relearn small civilities and kindnesses. If we don't need to leave six feet between us anymore, can we hold the door for the person behind us? Now that our masks are off, can we smile at the customer service person at the checkout counter? If we can be in one another's company, can we go visit our isolated uncle at the home, bring him a coffee, finally have a chat? With Rosh Hashanah around the corner as we take part in the reckoning of our soul, or Cheshbon HaNefesh, it is tempting to strive for a completely clean slate to begin our Jewish New Year. We look back on how we behaved 
and look forward to how we can do better. But let us not forget, we rarely regret kindness. We don't have to leave that behind. That aspect of the past can be and should be kept. It is kindness that is the balm for our souls, that carries us through the hard times and bathes us in the sweetness that the new year promises. As Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory wrote in his book From Optimism to Hope, Acts of kindness never die. They linger in the memory, giving life to other acts in return. The story about the holy man and the spider comes from the chapter in Nepo's book called I'd Rather Be a Fool Than Not Believe. It speaks not just to the beauty of kindness, but to its power. As the author says, this story tells that the strength of our kindness dilutes the sting of the world. My wish for all of us as we enter these days of awe is that we risk looking foolish in the pursuit of kindness. Yes, the world can sting, but we have the power, all of us together, to make our world less painful less bitter, and more sweet, one gentle cup full at a time. From my family to yours, Shana Tova, Gemar Chatima Tova, Gutiantav, and Gutior. Finally, we have Rabbi Shalom Shachter. Rabbi Shachter received his ordination from Aleph, the Alliance for Jewish Renewal. He has served Beth Shalom, Beth Tikva, and Beth Tzedek all in Toronto. Rabbi Shachter also had a successful career in labor law where he primarily worked in the healthcare sector. Rabbi Shachter's entry mixes old tunes with new ideas to help us hear modern themes in an ancient liturgy. I can't claim to see new faces in the sanctuary as we are all still masked. This is just another example of how Yom Kippur is thought of as Yom Kippurim, a day like Purim. Today's sermon contains a segment of an English version of the Avinu Makinu, written by my late father, Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi of Blessed Memory. And just before that, I will incorporate the melody and lyrics of my colleague, Rabbi Jack Gabriel, to the final phrase of the Yunatana Tokyev. Please join me in the chorus. Uteshuva, utefila, utsadaka, ma'avirinet roah gezera. Uteshuva, utefila, utsadaka, ma'avirinet roah gezera. The sound of the shofar calls us to attention and breaks open our hearts to the divine and to creation. Music can similarly stimulate empathy and caring. So the bulk of my sermon is a combination of song and chant. Avinu Makenu, our Father, our King. Can we eliminate misogyny when we sing? Ashamnu Baganu, Alchet our white privilege is not very new. This year, who will die from cold or who will fry? Who from war and who from neglect? To end this, will we even try? Kol nidre and hatarat nidarim, granted by the mata and malabate dinim. In one ship we all sail, Klal Yisrael and Yoshvei Tevel, year-round, not just during yamim nor ra'im. 
Why do we have a problem to see? We all belong to one society. Roshechem, Shivtechem, and Shoef Memechem. We all deserve justice and equality. We should not do rituals by rote. Their meaning for us must have note. Tashlich and Kapuras, on their own they can't cleanse us. Tikkun Olam needs actions and not just a vote. Like Abraham, we must speak truth to power. Like Jonah, from challenges we mustn't cower. No long should love you, with favor the wealth of the few. Slach lanu, kaper lanu. Utashuva, utafila, utzedaka, mavirinet, roahagazera. Isaiah said prayer and fasting are insufficient. Actions needed to make us all beneficent. Well, I'm gonna change my ways, utashuva, and I'll fill my mouth with praise, utafila, and I'll help in so many ways, utzedaka. God, please send us better days. Please join me in the chorus. Utashuva, utafila, utzedaka, mavirinet roah gezeira. Utashuva, utafila, utzedaka, mavirinet roah gezeira. The theme for the Yamim Noraim is Avinu Malkinu, our parent, our sovereign. While from the sovereign we can seek only justice, from our parent we can seek mercy and love. So we now turn to the adaptation of the Avinu Malkinu prayer. Please, sovereign, our parent sweet. Approach us and we will meet. Please lift our face to you in grace. Be kind from your mercy seat. The days of judgment are here. We tremble with fright and with fear. At the sound of the ram's horn, the worlds are newborn. Glad tidings of new hope we hear. The prayers, rituals, and verses from our Torah that I have referenced are all intended to stimulate self-reflection and a commitment to do better. The Unetana Tokev, this powerful narration of Kedushat Hayom, the sanctity of this day, shows that we can transform ourselves from simply being Edro, the sheep in Kivakorat Roe, in the shepherd's examination of the flock, to cease being passive, but to take action, to not simply accept our fate, but to work harder to create better karma for each of us and for all creation. Shana Tova, wishing you all a Gemar Khatima Tova. Now it's time in our show for Nachas, that thing that makes us feel good, Jewish, Canadian-ish sometimes, um, over the past week or the coming week or the past little while. Alana, what's your Nachas this week? On the theme of cheesy Jewish music, um, I was sent this video so many times that I just thought it was a sign that I should use it as my Nachas. Uh, I don't know if either of you saw Rosh Glahoma by Congregation B'nai Israel in Sacramento. Uh, they did a cover of a song from Oklahoma the Musical and made it all about Rosh Hashanah and they have their whole congregation sitting in the pews and they'll just like lift up their cusses in the middle and then do like a little l'chaim and they have all these little <laughs> reaction videos. Uh, well, I guess we'll have to post it in the show notes so that everyone can see this. I would love to see this. <laughs> it's pretty... Uh, pretty cringy what's but, um, what's the next one that's the theme of the week is it going to be rent and they're all on sukkahs like climbing <laughs> the sukkahs and singing um what what, what could we possibly Five thousand seventy seven hundred eighty three years how do you measure measure a jew david before this devolves what's your nachas <laughs> Continuing on the theme of TikTok and Instagram sensations, uh, I want to give a shout out to Miriam Anzovin. 
basically, I started watching her videos, and I immediately thought I was watching and listening to a, and this is a complete comp, um, compliment to a millennial Leah Leibowitz, who hosts a daily <laughs> podcast called Duff Yomi. Hmm? I like that. That's good. Yeah. Uh, she so, so Miriam does a daily Duff Yomi, which for people who are not really familiar with what Duff Yomi means, it's sort of a, a daily regime of learning the old Torah and its commentaries. And she puts it in a really fun, educational, colorful, humor-filled approach. You know, she talks about like all of our sins, all our oopsie whoopsies, and has a lot of uh, enjoyable commentary that I found really relatable. And I can get on board with, with what she is promoting. I am going to, uh, you guys hate when I do this, so I'm going to attempt to make this one nachas, but it's really three nachases. <laughs> but they're all together. Um, I'm decorating my sukkah this year with a lot of great art, um, and I'm going to shout out all the artists that I have compiled this year to put together uh, in my sukkah, aside from all the other decorations that we have. So uh, Dove Abramson is an artist from Israel, um, did a series of 26 posters that he calls the Ushpizot, right? They are women that we would like to have as guests in both ancient and modern uh, have in our sukkah. So I got Ushpizot posters from him. It's probably a little too late to get a poster set from him for this year, but you should definitely check him out because he has other year-long interesting art. Uh, he's on Etsy, uh, Dove Abramson Studio. Check that out. That's number one. Number two, the Moisha House Arts Pod in Cambridge, Massachusetts has a print subscription, and they send you four times a year a nice little print um, based on the holiday uh, that is coming up or the, that is around. Um, they have a nice sukkah print that is out and uh, I, that is going up in my sukkah. And uh, not sure if you can have time for that one either, but you should again check them out because they're doing great art throughout the year. Um, but finally, and they do do great art throughout the year, and you probably, if you still live in, if you live in Toronto, still have time to get something from Everyday Yiddish. So their poster is, is Live, Laugh, Lulav. Um, they have it's printed on vinyl. It goes right up in your sukkah. Um, you should check them out as well. They they are sold in and around Toronto and as well on their website. So check that out and get a nice little piece of sukkah art for uh, your sukkah. So any of those, uh, and it's not exclusive of any of the other Jewish artists that are out there because they're all great Jewish artists. But those are the three that are my nachas for the week because they are going up in my sukkah this year. You really, uh, you found a way to make it one, but um, yes. we're watching you. We are one. We are all one. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending October 8th, Shabbat Parashat Ha'azinu. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcasts is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We would love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It's one of the best ways we get new listeners. As always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar. 